Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week, we heard from conservation groups that are concerned about the access of e-bikes to non-motorized trails in the national park system and elsewhere on public lands. We also reported on the death of a black bear at Glacier National Park that was the result of a hazing incident that went awry. And we also took a look at the North Cascades Institute as a base camp for your exploration of North Cascades National Park. You can find those and other stories about the national parks at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we look at segregation in the national park system. Professor Aaron Devlin of the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia, has been working with the National Park Service to develop a historic resource study to examine the practice of racial segregation in Virginia's national parks during the first half of the 20th century. We caught up with her to find out what she's found. And we take a look down the road to when you might want to visit Everglades National Park during the winter months. The period of segregation and desegregation in the United States is a dark, divisive chapter of our country's history. Not even the national parks were spared from controversy and upheaval. One park with history with segregation is Shenandoah National Park in Virginia. There, in 1937, the Virginia Skyline Company became the park concessionaire. As Darwin Lambert noted in his book on the park's history, The Undying Past of Shenandoah National Park, the new concessionaire set up separate facilities for colored people. That led to development of the Lewis Mountain Campground, which was designated specifically for blacks. Professor Ern Devlin, who teaches history and American studies at the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia, has been working with the National Park Service to develop a historic resource study on the practice of racial segregation in Virginia's national parks. She joins us today to discuss her progress on this work. Welcome, Dr. Devlin. Thanks for having me, Kurt. So I was curious, how did you get involved in this project with the National Park Service? Well, when I was a graduate student at the College of William & Mary, I actually uh, worked on a cultural resource study focused specifically on Lewis Mountain, the segregated campground that you just mentioned in Shenandoah National Park. Um, And that project involved both archival research as well as oral histories conducted with former employees at Lewis Mountain, as well as local residents who had recreated at that particular facility. And a few years ago, the Park Service became interested in expanding on that work and some of the other work that had begun to emerge at various Park Service sites around the country and wanted to do a more concentrated historic resource study focused on segregation in Virginia's national parks in particular in the years before the passage of the Civil Rights Act. Virginia is, of course, in the backyard of the Washington, D.C. national office. And so in many ways, some of the policies that would affect parks nationally were experimented with um, in this state. And of course, Virginia also contains parks from three different regions, the National Capital Region, the Northeast Region, and the Southeast Region. So the study that I'm working on is fairly unique in the sense that it's a multi-site, multi-region historical resource study that's really focused on this particular topic. And what what parks in Virginia have you been looking at? Well, as I mentioned, the initial scope of the project focused on all of the parks established in the state before 1964. 
the second phase of the project, which I'm currently working on now, is looking specifically at sort of six case study parks in closer detail. Um, and those include Shenandoah that you mentioned, Colonial National Park in the Tidewater of Virginia, Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania National Military Park, Prince William Forest Park, and George Washington National Birthplace Monument. Now, most recently in the news, um, you and your students were involved in developing a wayside for Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park uh, concerning a building there that once served as restrooms for Blacks, I believe? Yes, yes. Um, The visitor center that was established for the Fredericksburg battlefield in the mid-1930s included segregated restroom facilities. Facilities for white visitors were provided in the basement of the visitor center, and those intended for the use of African-American visitors were established near what at that time was a service and garage area in sort of back courtyard of that building. So the students in my introduction to public history course, some of which uh, have an interest in working for the National Park Service later in their career, helped to develop a wayside exhibit to interpret that facility, in part because Eric Mink, the cultural resource manager at the park, has done a great job preserving the historical integrity of some of the initial or original fixtures. So visitors today can see the difference between what was once a white-only bathroom and what was once um, labeled as a colored men's restroom. They can see the difference in the finishes in terms of the tiling, the sizes and scope of the facility, and of course, its placement on the park landscape. Was there a significant difference in, in how they appeared? Yes. So the um, white restroom is obviously located in the basement of the visitor center. And the visitor center was meant to replicate what park officials imagined uh, affluent plantation house would look like, right? Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. a racially coded space in the first place. And if you go into those restroom facilities today, you can see that the floor of the bathroom was a polished stone and that stone extended up the sides of the walls. So it was relatively polished space, you could say. In comparison, the African-American restroom uh, located next to the service area had sort of serviceable subway tile and a basic concrete floor. And those are the kinds of things that um, park visitors can still experience today. Wow, that's pretty interesting. I, I, you know, I've been to Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania several times, but um, didn't really realize that aspect of the park's history. Was the Blacks-only restroom maintained by the Park Service throughout the years in terms of its original appearance? Well, I think um, not intentionally, per se, right? I think one of the issues um, that has arisen, if there's a silver lining associated with some of the deferred maintenance challenges that parks have been facing across the system, it's that a lot of these early park structures have actually survived intact with many of their original fixtures. So. Um, I've been to other parks like Colonial, for example, just this past April, where their restrooms, there are like little time capsules. I mean, they have um, bathrooms that were originally designated for white visitors from 1931 that have their original toilets and um, sinks and everything um, still preserved. What I think makes Fredericksburg different is that when the time came to actually refurbish that facility, um, cultural resource manager Eric Mink made an active decision that that facility, which had been constructed with public works money in the 1930s as part of the New Deal, was historically significant in its own right. 
And so um, he actively preserved some of the features like the tile and the stone and things like that, that enable park visitors to understand how Jim Crow segregation played out in that particular context. And that decision is what sort of ultimately enabled Eric in cooperation with Chief of Interpretation John Hennessy to actually place the Wayside exhibit that I collaborated with my students on in such a prominent location. So today, you know, park visitors actually park behind the visitor center and the Wayside is one of the first things that they'll see when they get out of their cars. And I think in that respect, it's really a model for what other parks might consider doing. That's a very prominent location, an important place to tell this story, but it doesn't necessarily impede with or compete with the story that the park is trying to tell on the battlefields themselves in relation to the Civil War. Yeah. Could, could you tell me how many sites you've identified in, in the parks in Virginia that you've looked at that have sites related to segregation? Yeah. So I guess I would say any park that is established before 1945 um, you should presume that the facilities there were segregated in the 1930s and 1940s. So, you know, that includes those that were presumed to be for white visitors, as mm-hmm. well as those that were officially marked as white or Negro in the terminology of the time. So certainly, you know, Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania is an example of that, but so too is Shenandoah, Blue Ridge Parkway, Colonial, George Washington Birthplace National Monument, um, and many others. Um, So this is really a history that we can find imprinted across the Park Service landscape. Now, you you mentioned, you know, how the Washington Office of the Park Service approached segregation. Um, Interior Secretary Harold Ix was um, a proponent, I guess, who, um, according to Mr. Lambert's book, considered himself uh, in advance of every member um, of FDR's cabinet winning real justice and opportunity for the Negro at long last. Did you, did you look into his history and, and the role of segregation in the parks and, and what he tried to accomplish? Sure. Harold Ickes was, before he became Secretary of Interior, associated with the Chicago branch of the NAACP. And he's perhaps most famous um, for allowing Marian Anderson to perform at the Lincoln Memorial in 1939, after the Daughters of the American Revolution refused to allow her to perform at Constitution Hall. And he was certainly known as an ally and an advocate for African-American civil rights, but he was also a dedicated New Dealer. And in the 1930s, Southern congressmen had disproportionate influence in the halls of Congress. Because of the restricted voting laws, they had to satisfy a relatively small electorate, and they were consequently reelected year after year after year and accrued seniority and authority. And so two-thirds of the committees in Congress in the 1930s were controlled by Southern congressmen. So as Roosevelt and his administrators are trying to advance their New Deal programs, they have to be in conversation with powerful Southern congressmen. Mm-hmm. And In Ickes' case, in relation to the national parks, he was trying to abide by his legal obligations under constitutional law and balance his desire to advance civil rights for African-American citizens with the sort of political necessity of being aware of um, the concerns of Southern congressmen. And that produced a kind of fraught conversation within the Department of Interior, frankly, about how Um, they should proceed in terms of the kinds of facilities that should be provided to visitors in the national parks. 
as a general rule, um, the National Park Service decided in the mid-1930s that they would abide by local law and custom in the states. So mm-hmm. in northern states, there were no segregated facilities provided, right? So if African-American children and white children attended the same schools, if people sat in the same restaurants, rode the same trains and buses and the like, then the Park Service would do the same. But in those parts of the country where segregation was enforced, park officials decided that they would accommodate segregation. And so the states that were affected included the 11 former states of the Confederacy, as well as border states like Kentucky and Maryland and Missouri and West Virginia, and the national capital parks in D.C., but also other states that you might not expect, like Oklahoma, Arizona, and New Mexico. Mm -hmm. So parks established in those parts of the country in the years before World War II had segregated facilities and a full range of segregated facilities, everything from pit toilets to the nicer kinds of comfort stations or restrooms that we've just been discussing, to picnic grounds. I've even found reference to segregated parking lots. And then those facilities operated by concessionaires, like dining rooms, coffee shops, overnight accommodations, cabins, and things like that, um, were also segregated. Now, one of the ironies of of Ickes was, um, while he was in favor of providing segregated areas, he didn't want them listed on park maps and whatnot. That's correct, but it wasn't, it was both motivated by a desire not to advertise that the park's were accommodating segregation, but also by a desire not to naturalize segregation in the parks. So um, Ickes had an advisor on Negro affairs named W.J. Trent, who himself was an African-American, and he supported the removal of designations like Negro and white from park literature and maps and signs because he didn't want visitors to become accustomed to seeing the parks marked that way. He felt that if the parks were clearly marked, then people would come to assume that they would be segregated in perpetuity. And he felt that by leaving it um, somewhat unclear and ambiguous, that the policy might be more readily uh, rolled back. Interesting. Yeah. And the policy, you know, on one hand, you can sort of understand the rationale, but on the other hand, you can imagine how difficult it would then be for African-American visitors to navigate through that landscape. Yeah. Um, to determine which parts of the park were open or available for their use and which were not. And it also makes things complicated for me as a historian looking back in the past, um, because even though a park's map may not be racially marked, even though even planning documents like blueprints might not be racially marked, um, that doesn't mean that they weren't segregated facilities. And so I really had to be attentive to the correspondence around the production of those kinds of documents and not just the documents themselves. We've been talking uh, today with Professor Aaron Devlin, who teaches history and American studies at the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia, on the topic of segregation in national parks in Virginia. Uh, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. 
Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. We're back now with Professor Aaron Devlin, who teaches History and American Studies at the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia. She's been looking into the background of segregation in the national parks in Virginia for a historic resource study. And um, most recently, uh, she and her students um, were involved in developing some waysides for Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park concerning a building um, there that once served as restrooms for the blacks. Dr. Devlin, in, in talking with um, Eric Mink at the military park, he, he informed me, and I'm surprised I didn't know this before, that uh, even CCC crews, uh, Civilian Conservation Corps crews in the 1930s were segregated. Yeah, that's right. So that's one of the other things I'm interested in looking at in my study is not only um, how segregation played out in relation to visitor facilities, but also in terms of people's opportunity to actually work in association with or for the National Park Service. And many of the parks that were developed in the state of Virginia really came on board in the 1930s um, because of the availability of CCC labor. Those camps were directly operated by the army and the army of course was segregated at the time. And so there were white camps and African-American camps. Um, and then the technical work was overseen by the park service. So um, here in the state of Virginia, Colonial National Historical Park was completely developed with segregated African-American CCC labor. Um, the park actually had at one time five African-American CCC camps working there, which meant that there were a thousand African-American enrollees working in the park at any given time to reshape that landscape and to prepare it for visitors. Um, wow. So the contributions of those enrollees to the park system in the state of Virginia are really uh, quite remarkable. As I tell my students today, you know, the next time you drive down um, Colonial Parkway and you're admiring the beautiful flowering redbuds and the dogwoods and the landscape that surrounds you as you move through that space, that is a direct legacy of the contributions of African-American bullies. And of course, here at Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania, um, the camp located at Chancellor's Battlefield was also um, an African-American camp. There was also another at Appomattox. So, you know, the contributions of um, those enrollees are really important in terms of the legacy that we all enjoy as park visitors today. One of the things that I've been looking at as my study has proceeded is, you know, 
that program effectively trained thousands of African-American men in the basic principles of conservation mm-hmm. and forestry practice. And what happened, you know, after the close of the CCC? Um, And while many white enrollees in the CCC ultimately did find their way into permanent positions in the technical staff of the National Park Service, the same opportunities for advancement were not extended to African-American enrollees. And so it really, in a way, in retrospect, was a lost opportunity to substantially diversify the ranks of our National Park Service. Yeah, earlier this year, I was working on another story um, pertaining to Shenandoah National Park, and it, it came to light um, uh, another one of those little um, historical aspects that gets lost uh, to time, is that the, the cabins that the CCC crews stayed in um, during the, the 30s when they were working in the parks, developing the parks, were later used to house conscientious objectors during World War II. Do you know whether those were also segregated camps? I do not know that. No, I know that conscientious objectors were also used in Blue Ridge Parkway, mm-hmm. um, but I've not seen any direct reference to segregation in those camps, so I really couldn't speak to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you've been um, traveling around to the parks there in Virginia. Any particular story that that stands out? I mean, obviously the the Lewis uh, Mountain Campground in uh, Shenandoah is is pretty interesting in, in its history. I mean, I think that's probably the most publicly known um, aspect of segregation in the parks. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, any other unique areas that you've come across in your research? I think Lewis Mountain um, stands out in part because it is the most developed facility for African American use um, in the Southern states. Um, But in many ways, it's not representative of the facilities that were available to African-American visitors. One thing that's important to understand about this history is that at the time, Park Service Director Arno Kimmer had a policy that uh, he would only build facilities in accordance with the demonstrated demand for them from African-American visitors. Mm -hmm. And so while many parks had plans to build Um, areas for African-American use. Those facilities were often not built because of perceived low demand from African-American visitors or perceived low interest in outdoor recreation. Um, And the Interior's advisor on Negro Affairs, W.J. Trent, sort of protested that in applying that policy, Cameron was applying a standard to African-American visitors that he was not applying to white visitors. The Park Service routinely built recreational facilities for white visitors, presuming that once those were available, that they would be made use of. Mm-hmm. But the same standard was not applied for African-American visitors. So as a result, the landscape across even the state of Virginia, let alone the entire nation, is really uneven in terms of how many facilities were actually developed for African-American use. And in some cases, um, parks deprioritized or underfunded the development of facilities for African-American use, preferring instead to build those intended for white use first. And you can see an example of that at um, George Washington Birthplace National Monument. In that park, it was noted that African-Americans were already um, utilizing a beach in the park for recreational use and were swimming there. And park officials did not want to encourage that kind of recreational practice. And so while they developed a picnic ground and a concession building for white use in another part of the park, they did
didn't build any kind of equitable or equivalent facility at that beachfront. And in fact, established regulations that basically said that people could not picnic or not swim except for an official picnic areas, which all happen to be white, right? Hmm. So those kinds of stories, I think, are also equally important to put in the balance where, you know, the facilities that were never constructed, right, the history that, you know, never fully came to fruition, um, mm-hmm. in part because of delays and efforts to deprioritize the construction of those facilities. Yeah. And yet, um, Lewis Mountain was pretty popular with blacks after it was established, was it not? Um, yes, most reports indicate that that's the case. And certainly, when I did my cultural resource study and interviewed local residents in Luray, which is where Shenandoah National Park's headquarters is located, those narrators described incorporating the facility into a regular round of homecoming picnics and family gatherings and, you know, trips after church on Sunday and all kinds of occasions and really incorporated it into their routine social calendar. So this in many ways is a fraught chapter of the Park Service's history, but it's also important to recognize that in comparison to the kinds of facilities that were being offered elsewhere, that these segregated facilities in many cases afforded local residents with the only opportunities they had to enjoy a public park. Hmm. Uh, The state of Virginia the state park system completely excluded African-American visitors with the exception of one small recreational area of several dozen acres. And that continued to be the case until after World War II when a lawsuit pressured them to equalize that facility and produce a sizable state park. But even then there was only one, you know, mm-hmm. available in the state of Virginia. So, you know, when we're thinking in, about this history, we have to kind of look at those nuances as well. Yeah. How did the um, period of desegregation go in in the parks there? I know uh, um, from my reading that, you know, after World War II, um, within a few months that uh, Interior Secretary Ickes ordered that all national park uh, concessionaires eliminate segregation. Was that uh, smoothly done and well accepted? Yeah, that was a process that actually got underway even before the outbreak of World War II. You know, as people are moving through the park landscape in the 1930s and they're encountering these segregated facilities and they're seeing the erection of four whites only or four Negro only signs, there is a fairly consistent influx of letters, both from individual citizens, both white and black, as well as civil rights organizations protesting against this policy. And one of the most poignant letters that I've read was written by an African-American school teacher who, you know, basically said that you know, the impact of entering a park and receiving a map with racial designations marked on it for white and for Negro has the immediate effect of making that visitor feel that they are not welcome. Mm -hmm. And he contended that even though the federal parks were located in the midst of, you know, segregated Southern states, that from his perspective, they should be operated much like embassy installments in foreign countries, right? (laughs) And that the laws of the federal government should be as in effect there as they are overseas. And so these kinds of recurrent complaints were coming into the Department of Interior and really forced Harold Ickes and other members of his staff to really wrestle with how they were going to address this issue. And in 1939, Ickes decided to experiment with integrating a single picnic area in Shenandoah National Park. 
and see how it went, essentially. Mm-hmm. He communicated through back channels to the NAACP that his intent was to demonstrate that integration could be implemented successfully, right, without violence, without conflict. And by demonstrating that it could be successful in this one place, he would be able to advance desegregation in other parks across the United States. And picnic areas operated by the Park Service continued to be segregated until about 1942, when the Park Service decided to desegregate those facilities. But as you mentioned, it wasn't until 1945 that they um, addressed overnight accommodations and dining and the like operated by concessionaires. Hmm. And the reason why Ickes moved decisively, or at least like the last straw in relation to that, actually had to do with discrimination against Jewish visitors. So shortly after the liberation of concentration camps in 1945, um, Harold Ickes received a letter from a Jewish American woman who informed him that a hotel located on an inholding in Rocky Mountains National Park had requested that she cancel her reservation because accommodation was not provided to Jewish visitors. And, you know, in the wake of the revelation of the horrors of Nazi Germany's program in relation to the Holocaust, Ickes moved decisively um, and asked his administrators to determine, you know, what he could do to place pressure on this facility in order to force them to abandon that practice. And as they were looking into that, he decided to draft the regulations that you mentioned in your question to discontinue discrimination by concessionaires based on race, creed, or color. Um, And that also applied to businesses operating within the boundaries of the park. So this particular hotel in question was not an official park concession, but it operated within the boundaries of the hotel because it was located on an inholding Mm -hmm. on land that the park service had not yet acquired. And so in 1945, then that's when that new regulation goes in place. Wow. So how much, how much more research do you have to do and, and what will the final product be of your, your efforts? So um, I'm working on what's known as a historic resource study for the Park Service. So that will be a document that is ultimately um, made available to Park Service administrators and those that are working in the parks. And then a series of smaller case study documents for the six parks that I mentioned that will provide more direct insight into how that policy was implemented on their actual park landscapes to help facilitate interpretation and help park staff answer any questions that visitors might have. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, I'm ultimately hoping to turn this work into a book that's available to the general public. Nice. So are you almost done with the research or is it uh, another year or two out? Um, I'm almost done. I am currently working on those case study documents and then, you know, the entire study is subject to a few rounds of revision and things like that. But it has been a fascinating project. It's a bit like being a detective, putting together all these different pieces of the puzzle, in part because, as I mentioned, it is a, it is a hidden history. Even within the records themselves, it's not always clearly stated. Sometimes it's obliquely referenced. And so it's been a really interesting project. And I think it's such an important story to tell because it really speaks to how the federal government's position in relation to its responsibilities um, regarding African-American civil rights was in constant evolution and development during the mid-20th century. Are there applications to to parks in other states, uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, 
I mean, do you, do you see, um, uh, are there similar instances of segregation down there that could also benefit from your, your approach? Yeah. I'm, so I am interested in expanding the study beyond the boundaries of Virginia. Great Smoky Mountains, uh, as well as Mammoth Cave and others were involved in these ongoing discussions with Park Service administrators in Washington, D.C. about how to provision facilities for African-American visitors and ultimately then thereafter how to desegregate those facilities. So this is certainly not a story that just affects parks in Virginia, right? It affects all of those um, states that I mentioned uh, earlier in our interview. And really, it continues to shape the park landscape that we traverse today. Lewis Mountain, for example, is located in a relatively quiet part of the park. It's not near a predominant entrance gate, right? It's sort of tucked away in a quiet place. And now it's really popular, right? Because that's what people are looking for in their camping experience uh, today, sort of an undiscovered gem tucked away, you know, as maybe a little bit quieter and off the beaten path. But the fact that that environment is like that is a direct result of the fact that um, the Park Service sought to place facilities for African-Americans in those kinds of tucked away corners. And so one of the things that I'm hoping comes out of this study is that as we move through these spaces, we might have a better understanding of why they're structured the way that they are and how that informs our own experience in the parks today. We've been talking today with uh, Professor Aaron Devlin, who uh, professor of uh, history and American studies at the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia. She's been working on a uh, historic research study of segregation and uh, even desegregation in the national parks located in Virginia. Um, professor Devlin, it, it sounds like a fascinating story that you're uncovering and telling, and uh, certainly we look forward to um, the, the final results of it and the publications, and uh, certainly appreciate your time today, and if you uh, are able to expand it into those other states, uh, we can revisit down the road and see what you're finding there. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Kurt. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. One of the most incredibly beautiful birds you'll find in Everglades National Park is the purple gallinule, unless you see a Rosetta spoonbill, or maybe a tricolored heron, or a, well, you get the idea. There are an amazing number of gorgeous bird species in the Everglades. And in a few months, 
they'll be even easier to spot. That's because May through November typically is a wet season in this paradise, and with more rain, birds don't need to cluster around water holes, but can disperse across the river of grass. And unless you're willing to leave the park roadways in search of those birds, and face the prospect of bug clouds, snakes, and reptiles bigger than you, I'm talking alligators and crocodiles, you won't have an easy time filling out your life list. The varying seasons in Everglades are one of the first things you need to know about this national park, for you'll likely have a much more enjoyable time visiting between November and May than vice versa. Unless, of course, you prefer hot, muggy, buggy weather. At a glance, the park is truly incredible. It embraces the largest officially designated wilderness east of the Mississippi, the 1.3 million acre Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Wilderness. The park is festooned with delicate and fanciful orchids, such as the cowhorn, and layered with both hiking and paddling trails. Everglades is rich in wildlife, though some, such as those huge constrictors, are non-native and creating an ecological nightmare in the park. The park's infestation by Burmese pythons is one threat that landed Everglades on the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization's World Heritage Site in Danger list. If you're hoping to see wildlife, then visit the Everglades during the dry winter months when animals concentrate around rapidly diminishing water holes throughout the park. Alligators, wading birds, and other freshwater wildlife are readily seen at Shark Valley, the Anhinga Trail, and Echo Pond. Canoeists can observe large numbers of wading birds feeding before low tide in the shallows and mudflats of Snake Bite near Flamingo and Chukaloski Bay on the Gulf Coast. Another good place for canoeists is Nine Mile Pond in the adjacent Burrow Pits. That's about 11 miles up the road from Flamingo. Motorists, bicyclists, hikers, boaters, and paddlers are likely to see plenty of charismatic creatures near the roads, trails, and waterways. As I've mentioned, the winter months are better in terms of both temperatures and insects, but it's also the busy season, so expect to share trails and campgrounds with lots of fellow travelers. The Everglades' 19 hiking trails are located in four general areas, Royal Palm, Lone Pine Key, Flamingo, and the Shark Valley. Perhaps the most traversed trail is the Anhinga Trail, a short and easy, wheelchair-accessible, self-guided trail that heads out from the Royal Palm Visitor Center and winds through a sawgrass marsh. It is very popular because it is exceptionally easy to get to and affords wonderful views of the sawgrass and assortment of interesting wildlife. Visitors along this trail can expect to see alligators, turtles, anhingas, herons, egrets, and many other birds. While Everglades National Park might evoke images of swamps and scaly denizens, Florida Bay's waters cover one-third of the park. There are mangrove channels in this vibrant estuary, which is of national significance. Emerald mangrove islands stipple the bay and punctuate the horizon in all directions. You just might get an idea of what the Florida Keys were like before t-shirt shops and Jimmy Buffett. During the winter months, sign up for guided cruises offered daily to both Florida Bay and the backcountry. You'll see crocodiles, manatees, dolphins, sea turtles, and all manner of shorebirds, so be sure your camera is fully charged and ready. As contributing writer Emeritus Bob Janeski noted back in 2009, people who visit Everglades National Park for the first time tend to have little knowledge of it, but lots of misconceptions. Most are pleasantly surprised to discover that the park isn't just a big swamp full of gators and snakes. 
However, many also conclude that Everglades is scenically challenged. You don't encounter awesome peaks, gorgeous waterfalls, or other dramatic scenery like you find in Yellowstone, Grand Canyon, or Hawaii volcanoes. Everglades has a more understated appeal. Much of what you see is very interesting, even compelling, but it's not likely to make you stop in your tracks and say, wow. Now, some will disagree with that last statement, of course. You'll just have to go and see for yourself. This is not a park open to windshield touring, because most of it is protected wilderness and there are few roads. But it is most certainly amenable to exploring by paddle, primarily sea kayak. There are 53 designated canoe routes, including the Wilderness Waterway. Paddlers should obtain a copy of Molly's A Paddler's Guide to Everglades National Park. In it, you'll learn that the park's canoe trails vary in length and difficulty. Canoeists putting in at the Gulf Coast Visitor Center can take the Sandfly Island Trip, the Turner River Trip, or the Halfway Creek and Turner River Loop. Those putting in at Flamingo can tool around Florida Bay or paddle Nine Mile Pond Loop, the Noble Hammock Trail, the Hell's Bay Trail, Bear Lake Canal, Mud Lake Loop, or West Lake Trail. Now, if you're ambitious, you can tackle the Wilderness Waterway, a 99-mile inland water route extending along the mangrove shoreline between the Flamingo and Gulf Coast Visitor Centers. In between, there's no road access, and you'll pine for this kind of solitude and peace of mind once you're back in civilization. There is nowhere else in the eastern United States where you will experience this sort of isolation. Numbered markers lead you through mangrove forests, through Whitewater Bay, and around countless mangrove islands. Boats equipped with outboard motors can make the trip in one day, but canoeists usually take about nine. Campsites are available along the route, including open-sided huts, known as chickies, perched on stilts in places with no dry land. Backcountry permits are required for overnight stays. There has been no lodging in Everglades since 2005, when back-to-back hurricanes battered the national park. Now, however, Everglades Guest Services, a wholly-owned subsidiary of Guest Services, Inc., is under contract to build 24 cottages and 20 eco-tents at Flamingo. Eventually, there could be as many as 40 cottages and 40 eco-tents. A restaurant also is expected to be built there. Flamingo is accessed by water through Florida Bay, or a 45-minute scenic drive through the park. Under the concessions plan, visitors should be able to walk out their cottage door and within minutes have the opportunity to see crocodiles, alligators, manatees, sawfish, sea turtles, dolphin, tarpon, and more. Flamingo is also a world-class birding and fishing paradise with rich history of peoples and industries. Put it all together, and Everglades National Park presents you with an incredible opportunity to see South Florida as it once was. Here you'll find a wildlife menagerie and amazing wilderness experiences. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. 
This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.